Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Stephen Charleston. Stephen is a leading voice for Indigenous peoples, a member of the Choctaw Nation, theologian, and author of the recently released book, We Survived the End of the World, Lessons from Native America on Apocalypse and Hope. You can get connected with Stephen and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Stephen Charleston with me. And uh, Stephen, you're a leading voice uh, of justice for indigenous peoples, the environment, and spiritual renewal. Uh, you are a member of the Choctaw Nation. Uh, and uh, did, did I pronounce that right? I, I always feel like the, some, of the, some of the tribe names, I'm like, I, I feel like I'm all over the place in my pronunciation. But is it Choctaw? Is that how you pronounce it? That's close. It's uh, Choctaw, Choctaw. Choctaw. But that's uh, that's a. Uh, uh, a English pronunciation of our real name, which is Chata. Chata. Okay, Chata. great. Yeah. Great. So you are, yeah, a, a member of the Chata Nation, and uh, you've appeared on ABC, the BBC, and other outlets. Uh, so you certainly are uh, a, a person that talks a lot about this kind of stuff. Um, but you recently wrote uh, an incredible book called We Survived the End of the World, Lessons from Native America on Apocalypse and hope. Uh, such an incredible book. Uh, you're sharing so many different stories uh, and sharing some of the, the wisdom that y- you and your communities uh, have uh, in offering so much. And so anyway, all of that's to say uh, you do a lot of things and you've done a lot of things, but more than anything, I want to know who is Stephen Charleston to Stephen Charleston? Oh, that's a good place to start. I, I've got to say, I, I think I am one of those strange people who was sort of born to do something that it just was kind of among their family members, even when they were little, Mm. people noticed something about them and predicted they would go on to fulfill some destiny, whether it was to be a great singer or a politician or whatever. Mm -hmm. For me, it was uh, uh, to be a spiritual person. I come from rural Oklahoma in, um, and I was born on a um, small farm uh, with an extended family uh, where we all watched out for each other. And my great-grandfather was, one of his jobs was to take care of me when I was very small. And so he would uh, tell me stories. And he told me lots of stories from the Bible, from mm-hmm. memory. He would tell me these things, Noah's Ark and Daniel and the lion's den, the kind of stories that would make a little kid really interested. And then at one point I said, how come, you know, he, he asked me, he said, how come do you think I'm telling you all these stories? And I said, I don't know. And he, I was about four years old. And he said, we were sitting out on the porch of our little farmhouse. And he said, because someday you'll grow up and be a spiritual man. You're mm-hmm. going to be a holy man. 
So I thought about it and I just assumed that he was telling me the truth and that that was my calling. So I've sort of spent my whole life in this area of the spiritual and the the sacred. And it's broad and vast and we can talk Mm -hmm. about it in any number of ways. But just to answer your question, I am a native person, an indigenous citizen here of this of this uh, this country, uh, and I think that my calling has been to try and help people of all aspects of our society find spiritual meaning in their lives. Mm. I think that's who I am, and now I'm old and I'm still doing it. So I'm I must it must be true because <laughs> I'm still here and I'm still trying to do it. Wow. I mean, truly a lifelong calling. Uh, I love that. That is is great. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, It's just uh, been so great. Uh, Before we dive into some of the contents of the book, obviously, you're you're sharing a lot of, you know, memoir to this. You're sharing a lot of indigenous wisdom uh, with different kind of storytelling uh, pieces and everything. So uh, I would imagine there's this isn't a book that like you're uh, doing like some sort of academic research for. But it was there anything that you maybe you kind of learned uh, maybe about history? Maybe it was about um, some sort of like story that you learned? Uh, Was there anything that you learned as you were writing the book that maybe you didn't know before? That's a great question. Yes, there were more than one thing. I mean, I've learned quite a bit. Like most people, when you're into an area, a subject that's of interest to you, you can really plow through a lot of reading and a lot of different information. Some of it you're already familiar with as you get older, but others, uh, things are surprising. And I found um, a lot, for example, about the dreamer religion, in the in the northwest part of the United States, among mm. the Native American nations there, that the whole visionary understanding of the dreamer um, religion and among those Native people was something relatively new to me. I knew the woodland peoples, people in the south, the Southwest, the Navajo, the Hopi, uh, the Apache. I knew about the all the Plains tribes. Uh, Rapahos, Kiowa, Shoshones, and Lakotas, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know a lot about the Northwest Coast. And I really discovered a lot about how deeply their religious way of life was a source of strength for them. And that it came from this visionary understanding of receiving a vision from heaven that was meant for you and then living it out. Sort of like I described myself, that you get a vision of who you are and then you try to live that out mm. and live it out with dignity and respect and honor. And um, that was a core part of their culture that led them to a deep primal relationship with Mother Earth, that they felt the part of their vision was that the Earth is a living being and that we are living with the Earth. And, mm. and in so doing, are called to live in a relationship just as though the earth was a person. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. fascinating. Well, when they would have these uh, th- these visions of calling, was that something that they would do in community? Maybe somebody told them like, hey, uh, like I, I, I feel like this is where you're gifted in the world and, and maybe this is the calling that you have uh, for your life. Or, or was it something kind of more of a miraculous kind of vision where they would go out uh, maybe by themselves and wait for this vision to come to them and then they find out um, through that vision what their calling is? Uh, I'm curious more a little bit about the vision um, that they would have. Uh, because I, b- based on how you answer that, I've got, I've got some like kind of reflections on what that could mean for our world today. Yeah, it's a 
the visions actually work a bit of both ways, meaning okay. that in some cases, like um, Gayondayo in uh, among the Mohawk, he was a person whose vision really occurred when he was very ill and he was in his little uh, home alone, so to speak, as other family members were out of, because he was sick, they were out working in the fields and he passed out and had this vision. He didn't really ask for it. He didn't really go seeking it. It was validated by his community when, when he explained it to them. So it was a kind of both a very personal thing and a communal thing, but not someone going off on a vision quest. That was true for other people uh, throughout Native communities where your vision could in fact be something that you would go off by yourself. You would prepare yourself for it. You'd, you'd purify yourself. You'd have a lot of people praying for and supporting you, but you'd go up, up by yourself, usually to a high place where you'd sit alone for up to four days, one day, two, three, four days, maybe, without um, food and without changing your location and chanting and singing and waiting for a vision, uh, really asking God to come and give you a vision. And that was quite common in all Native communities in North America. And so you could have visions like that, which were very intentionally sought. You give spontaneous visions, like some of the prophets in my book did, where they mm -hmm. just literally fell down, dropped down, uh, like they'd been hit by a lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. I, the, the sense of calling, though, that, that people get from those visions have got to be like such an important part of your identity and such a healthy thing for, for humans, I think. You know, I think of a lot of the, the, the sort of ills of our society today, you know, we, we've got so much depression. Um, obviously, you know, along those lines, we get suicide. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that so many people don't actually really have a sense of calling, something like something greater than themselves that they're being called towards uh, in, in their lives. And so a lot of times we just get stuck in this like capitalist machine of, you know, you just sit at a desk all day at a computer and you feel like this is this all that I'm supposed to do in the world. Uh, and and I think a lot of people get that sense and they don't feel like there's a way out. Um, but what I love about so many indigenous communities and so many other communities is there was such a, a devout core part of making sure that somebody felt a calling based on what they're gifted at, what they were interested in. And, and that person lived that out. But that calling was based in relationship, not to fulfilling the capitalist machine. Right. And so mm -hmm. I think that would be such an important part uh, of helping people feel like they have something greater to live for um, beyond just serving uh, capitalism. And so uh, anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts or reflections on that, but that, that, that deep part of of calling in these visions, in these indigenous visions, seem to be something that I think just anybody uh, w would um, really benefit from. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think one of the great resources that Native tradition in, in um, our history has to offer to people of all backgrounds, it's not just a, a message or a story for a few. It's really something available to everyone in our larger society. And that is that spirituality is an alternative way of living uh, to just the greed and avarice of trying to make more money and own more things and buy the right. biggest thing you can buy, that kind of thing. Or that kind of society that uh, idealizes billionaires as mm -hmm. though we should all aspire to become a, a, a billionaire. Right. Uh, spirituality in Native America is a way of life. 
It is a worldview. It is how you get up and conduct yourself in a community. And it helps answer the fundamental question that so many alienated and fearful people in our time are asking. That's what am I here for? What, what's mm. going to happen? What are we doing? Things seem out of control. Things seem to be happening without human, human intervention. They're just like the earth is getting sicker and sicker. More and more wars are occurring. Violence is spreading. Uh, how does one person cope with that? Native America has an answer. It has a spiritual answer that says that when you are looking, for example, for your vision, it's asking the question, why am I here and what do you want me to do? Mm. And you're finding meaningful answers to that, Mm -hmm. to use your talent, your wisdom, your strength to add to others and make a difference and change reality and Mm -hmm. reshape reality with a creator who is is there uh, overseeing all of us not from any one tradition, not necessarily saying that this creator comes from any one culture. Uh, it is a, it is a universal call that indigenous people raise around the world that we care for one another, we care for Mother Earth, and if we could do those two things, we'd see a great difference in the world. Mm. I mean, I don't even know what other questions I need to ask. That that was a that was like a sermon right there. I love that. <laughs> Obviously, you, you were just mentioning a little bit about, you know, the wars, the diseases, you know, all these things that are going on in our world. And, you know, some people would describe all those things as apocalypse. And so obviously, when you write a book called We Sur- Survived the End of the World, you're probably talking a little bit about apocalypse. So when you talk about apocalypse throughout this book, what, what do you mean by apocalypse? Obviously, it's, it seems a little slightly different than the Christian uh, Book of Revelation version of apocalypse. But obviously, there's some similarities there, too. Well, yes, you, the apocalypse you read about, for example, people talk about in the Bible is a vision of, of all the things that are supposed to come in the future at the end of the world, at the end mm. of time. And this concept that there is an end point to history or reality has been part of every spiritual tradition on earth over thousands of years. People have wondered, what does this mean? When will it end? What, what's going to happen? Right. So an apocalypse is either a vision of what is to come, or it is an actual experience that people are having. For example, my ancestors, the the Chata people, used to live in the southern part of the United States in what is today Mississippi. And we were uh, forced on the Trail of Tears to walk from our homeland in Mississippi across the Ozark Mountains in the winter to, to be driven out of our home by the government And during that forced march, about a fourth of our people died, particularly the children and the old people. They froze to death or got lost on the journey. So we have suffered then already as a people an apocalypse. Mm. What does apocalypse mean? It means the end of your world as you know it. And our world as Native people was ended in so many ways. Our land was taken. Our language was forbidden. Our religion was forbidden. Our way of making a living was taken away from us. We were herded into into ghetto camps and held there against our will. Just our language was taken. It was an apocalypse. Think about that. Native Americans have already experienced what many people would say if you just made a list of what went bad for them. You'd say, that's an apocalypse. Yes, everything you thought was stable and certain and real was suddenly turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And yet the people survived. There it is. And yet the people survived. How? 
What did they know? What did they do? What was different about them? How could we learn from them to survive what we now are beginning to feel is a turning upside down of our world. Right. The, the things are happening in a way we don't want. How do we learn from other cultures and traditions who've already survived that kind of, that colonialism brought to them? The terror mm-hmm. of colonialism, of slavery in Africa, of people being ripped out of their homes and sent off to be slaves. My gosh, there's a lot of people that have been through an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. What have mm-hmm. we learned that can prepare us to not only survive an apocalypse, but perhaps prevent one by changing history, by moving reality in a different direction? That's what my book is about. And I think that's what the Native people bring to the table. If you look at our history, we're still here and now we're growing and thriving. We must have known something that was of value because mm-hmm. by all practical purposes, we should have been wiped out. Yeah, I, I I still remember the first moment where I felt or experienced what felt like true apocalypse. Uh, I, I live in Minneapolis, and uh, I remember the, the the first kind of days after George Floyd was murdered, and um, you know streets were starting to to be set on fire. And I remember, you know, waking up one morning and just going down to kind of where a lot of the the places that ended up um, being set ablaze. And just seeing what, you know, used to be a shop that I would go buy groceries at or whatever. Right. And, and to see everything uh, completely, completely destroyed by fire. Uh, I, I was just like, I, I feel like this is what the apocalypse, you know, when people describe mm-hmm. images or metaphors of the apocalypse, this is what it feels like right now. Uh, you know, knowing that somebody uh, was just brutally murdered by the police and then seeing all these things that have now just happened in response to that, it just felt like the apocalypse for uh, a number of weeks in Minneapolis. Well, and, um, take, and, for yeah. exam- take, for example, January 6th, right? when we, we watched crowds of people uh, smashing doors down at the Capitol and running around in the building, tearing pictures off the walls. How, what, what is that, if anything, but an apocalyptic vision? I mm-hmm. mean, it's mm-hmm. horrifying. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, or, or, you know, what we're seeing right now um, in Palestine, you know, seeing so right. many people being absolutely not only just killed, but seeing buildings and uh, schools and hospitals and, uh, uh, you know, just lots of different destruction going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so many lives are being lost. And, you know, you see some of these images of what these cities looked like before they were bombed. And, you know, the, these beautiful sprawling cities of people, um, you know, doing the things that people do in the world and to now just see utter destruction. Uh, you know, it's just, it's re- really horrifying. And again, you're, you're right. Like you, we see these apocalypses happening every single day. And, uh, you know, for some people, it really truly is reality, just in the same way that um, for for your people, it was a reality. Um, and, and in some ways, they're shape, you know, shape or form, knowing some of the, the, the things that are going on in your community right now, uh, th- there's even maybe some of these mini apocalypses going on. Um, well, that we uh, see. That's, a, that's a good word for it in a way, mini apocalypse think about it too in terms of the fact that it's just as human beings if you or I received uh, a diagnosis of cancer from a doctor that would be an apocalyptic moment for you and I right anytime you receive that in your own life you can have apocalyptic moments deaths and divorces and accidents and sudden uh, tragedies so the end of the world hits us in different ways at different times and I think that's why talking about it in the way that I'm trying to talk about it in this book is helpful, not only to the global issues like preserving our planet, 
but also sometimes to the personal issues, keeping yourself together when times are hard. I want to invite you to the Q Christian Fellowship Conference on January 11th through the 14th, 2024 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Are you LGBTQ and Christian, or are you an ally of the LGBTQ community and looking to learn how to better uplift the lives of LGBTQ individuals in faith-based spaces? This conference is an annual gathering where LGBTQ Christians, parents, and allies gather for worship, fellowship, workshops, and keynote speakers, making lifelong friendships, experiencing healing, transformation, and hope, and witnessing the fullness of God's love and affirmation through each other. This year's speakers include Miles Markham, Bishop Joseph William Tolton, Kathy Baldock, Britt Barron, and special guests Flamey Grant, Matthias Roberts, and many more presenters who are deeply committed to this work, including this podcast, A People's Theology, which will record a live episode that you can attend. Register today at qcfconf.org with the code APEOPLESTHEOLOGY, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount off your conference registration. Q Christian Fellowship, cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ Christians and allies through a commitment to growth, community, and relational justice. I hope to see you there. Yeah, I think back uh, to, you know, the book of Revelation and, and, you know, quite literally the name Revelation being uh, the name of the book. When I think about apocalypse, I often think about not just vision, but obviously revelation. You're seeing something maybe for the first time. And, you know, again, going back to when George Floyd was murdered and seeing what happened in response, I finally realized in that moment, wait, we need to rethink how we do accountability, how we we need to rethink how we police uh, in our society. And and that was, for me, part of when I saw everything happen, I I realized, oh, that was not just an apocalypse, but it was truly that apocalypse that's a revelation because I, for the first time, really, truly saw the horrors of what policing has been in America. And so, um, you know, that that was a moment for me. And so when I think back to apocalypse, I often think about that revelation where I feel like I got new eyes for the first time to see something I couldn't see before. And a deeply spiritual tragedy in the sense that totally. uh, that, that whole question of I can't breathe mm-hmm. is such yes. a powerful statement for this tragic man uh, to have uttered those words. And then what that means in the broadest sense, in, in some ways for all of us, I can't breathe. There's Mm -hmm. no air here. Life is not possible in this kind of world. We need a new, like you said, revelation, a new unfolding, a revealing of of a different way to live, an alternative that we can all buy into and work at together to avoid those kinds of moments. You you mentioned a bit ago that your people in particular, you know, experienced this apocalypse, especially as they were on the Trail of Tears. And uh, and nevertheless, they survived. And I'm really curious, what are some of the things that we can learn from maybe your particular community about how we survive apocalypse? Gosh, the, there's all kinds of an- good answers, and uh, some of them are in the book. But I, I think uh, one of them, or a couple of them I'll mention would be this thing I was talking about with the dreamer religion, the native people, that's what they called it in the Northwest, and that relationship with the earth. Um, if we can help people gain a sense that the earth is not just a pile of natural resources, 
it's not just a utilitarian pile of stuff, lim uh, lumber, rocks, coal, diamonds, whatever we want to get, but that it is a living creature. It is a living being. And that our relationship with the earth needs to be based on that understanding that we are, mm -hmm. in fact, treating the earth as though we would treat our own mother. And if we lived in a world, if you thought about it for a minute, and we lived in a world in which everyone was growing up with the same understanding, and that is the earth is our literal mother and we don't abuse her, we treat her with respect, what a different society we would have. Certainly. How radically different the world would be. That single thought, the earth is a living mother. She is your living mother. That's what the prophets in the Northwest said to the American military when they showed up to um, force them off their land and into reservations. The people uh, kept saying, but we can't abandon our earth. This is the mother. This is, this is our relationship with it. So that understanding is kinship in the spiritual tradition of our people. It's to be in kinship, a bond of relationship. Mm -hmm which uh, is uh, enormous importance. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, something I just saw recently of, you know, all the bombing again going on in the Middle East and, and people talking about, you know, this is holy land and, and never, re, re, even though they call it holy land, they're bombing it. And it's like, how, yeah. well, how, how holy do you really think it is if you were just totally willing to bomb it? Uh, and it's insanity, I think. Yeah. It's a sad sad feeling you get that this, yes, this is what we call the Holy Land. Yeah. It, you know, you talking about us needing to have a, a reorientation in our relationship to the Mother Earth uh, reminds me a lot of, of some of the thoughts I've had recently of, you know, I, I think having some of these green products that we see now of, you know, you know, the, the green, whatever, the eco, whatever, uh, I, you know, I don't have any issue with those sort of things. But at the end of the day, there's still a piece in capitalism that's just trying to make capitalism a little greener or a little bit more eco-friendly. And as helpful as those products may or may not be, I think at the end of the day, regardless, people need to not just sort of green themselves out of climate change. They actually are going to have to reorient their relationship to the Mother Earth. And uh, that ultimately is what is going to give us any hope to helping Mother Earth, uh, you know, be revitalized and, and healthy once again. Yeah. And I think some of the, when I say there's resources or visions in Native America that, that speak to our current condition, they don't always speak to it in a way that is, makes it easier. Uh, for example, one of the ways of, that our tradition has of helping people is to, to teach us the value of thinking that uh, we are all part of a community together and that we're all responsible for the, the helping the community. We think in the, in the we, not in the me, giving up that sense that I am the measure of all things, that I want to have my rights fulfilled. I want everything I want and need, and I deserve to have. It's that entitled sense of, of the settler colonial mentality that we're entitled to all of this. And the more I get, the better. We don't need more, Native America says. We need enough. There's mm -hmm. a big difference. And so it's a change of mind, change of mindset. But it's a living into something. It's not easy to do. A lot of people are programmed to want more. I need mm -hmm. more. I deserve more. And if I get more, people will think more highly of me. Uh, changing that attitude and letting people learn to be satisfied with enough 
the, but enough so that everyone gets a share, everyone is treated equally. Mm-hmm. That's the goal of Native American thought that won't be easy for us to achieve, but it is, if we agree to it, it gives us a sense of direction. Mm-hmm. This is something we could do. Mm-hmm. I, I often think through the, the the sort of mindset that animates capitalism is this mindset of scarcity, that there isn't enough. And in order for you to be able to survive, you have to hoard and be greedy and have more than more than enough. Uh, right. You, you need more than just survival. And we see that, you know, we've got people who make more money than they could possibly spend. Right. And and to me, I, I wonder or I, I think through like what it would it look like for us to have an economics of enough that you're talking about this economics of enough. And, you know, I, I, the, the indigenous literature that I've read it, you know, I often hear the same sort of sentiment of, of there is enough. Uh, the, the mother earth is going to provide enough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that means that we don't need to be greedy. We don't need to hoard. We will have enough. You will survive. And I wonder what it would look like then if we created an economy around that instead. To think about it. You're absolutely right on the on the money. No joke intended, because that's exactly right. We have uh, to create a mindset that we have enough resources, enough money, or enough food, or enough housing to go around. If we live into a different way of life together, we can't sustain it. If one percent of the population is sucking up ninety percent of the resources, right. that won't work. So again, we're talking about a serious reallocation of how we do things in this country or in this culture mm-hmm. and moving toward that egalitarianism and, and sense of equality that was so foundational to Native American civilization. We mm-hmm. are a culture that learned how to live with one another. Uh, we learned what it means to live in communal society and to share with one another so that we never uh, ever ran into a scarcity, but mm-hmm. always had uh, enough for everyone. Right. And it's so key and so simple. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned before when you were younger, you came from the tr- uh, Christian tradition. And I, I don't know if you, if you still would identify as a Christian or not. But what I will say, uh, what I love about us talking about, you know, th- this economy of enough, and, and uh, you mentioned it just a, a second ago about, um, you know, uh, creating a community where we're, we're in sharing everything into common. One of the things that I love about Christianity is that the earliest Christian communities, you know, after they um, knew about this Christ event of this this guy they called Jesus, and now they called him the Messiah, the first thing that they did in response to that, uh, at least according to uh, the, the book of Acts, the first thing that they did was they decided to share everything in common. I I just find that so fascinating to think that the first thing that we do in response to having this powerful transformative experience with this person we call Jesus is to share with one another. I think that is a powerful thing that the early church did. And I kind of wonder, you know, it'd be a little bit different. You know, I wonder how much different the world would be if uh, the two point billion or however many Christians are in the world did the same thing if they had that same transformative experience with Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts around that or not, but uh, that's what that conversation reminded me of. Well, I, I do have a couple of thoughts because uh, I have, I'm a big believer that people are hybrids when it comes to spiritual life. 
That is, we've been influenced and, and uh, for the better from a number of traditions. If in, and in my case, for example, uh, sure, I'm curious about Jesus. I'm curious about somebody that could spark a movement like that, that the first thing people would say is, let's learn how to give each other uh, everything equally and we'll mm-hmm. share what we have. What was this person teaching him? What was it that motivated him and motivated them? So yes, Christian tradition is vital to me. My own native tradition is vital. It's a powerful influence, of course. It's the rootedness of what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Buddhism has been enormously influential in my life. Buddhist meditation and the practices of mindfulness, tremendously helpful and important. So I'm like most people, I think, watching this and listening to your podcast. It, you know, you're, we're a mixture of things. Mm-hmm. We have many different types of uh, right. spiritualities. And yeah. those can only do us good. They, they help us. And that one about, this is so fascinating that they, the first thing they wanted to do was uh, to give everything away and they expected things were going to happen any minute. Right. I, I've got a, a question around that, but I want to put a bookmark on that um, in a little bit. But uh, I, I want to get to the four profits that you, uh, and, and not when I talk about four profits, I know we're just talking about capitalism. I don't mean F-O-R profits, like P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean uh, the, the number four and profits, like the, you know, people speaking wisdom in, into the world. Uh, I want to hear a little bit more about these four indigenous profits, uh, because obviously you talk a l- uh, quite a bit about them, uh, and they, they certainly have a lot to offer, I think, not only their, their own communities at their own time, but also um, what's going on in the world now. So can you talk about each one of these prophets and what each one has to offer? I'll, I, I will. Thank you. I'll do it briefly, but I think it's helpful because it's really the way I I tried to start the book was to ask, so how did our people survive an apocalypse? If if our history has been so horrible, what? how did we survive it? And I thought one way to find out was to go to the spiritual leaders to see of the time, to see what were they saying. And in fact, throughout the history of this country, the Native communities had spiritual leaders rise up in their midst and guide them and help them and give them ideas of how to cope. And so the survival was built into some of the teachings or the wisdom of these prophets. So I found four prophets to look at that I thought would be illustrative of different eras and different moments in history. And then one whole tribe, one community, one nation of people that I looked at the Hopi. Among the the prophets, you think a little bit about prophets in the Bible are spiritual spokespersons who appear and they bring a, a say, sacred message to the people. Well, one of those was in upstate New York among the, among the Seneca people. Uh, Ganio Dayo was his name, but in English he's better known as Handsome Lake. Handsome Lake was a man who was about to die and he was very ill and partly from acute uh, alcoholism. And he was like the last person you'd think of as being a prophetic speaker. Mm. He literally poisoned himself with alcohol to the point of his own death. But instead of dying, uh, Handsome Lake said he went to heaven and he saw the future and of where life could go and how it could be better. And he came back to earth, came back into inhabit his body and began to teach people. That's the story of him. And one of the things that's so miraculous about it 
is that he helped save his people from absolute uh, annihilation, from being sort of completely wiped out. He gave them a strong sense of identity as a community, and they they stayed together. And still to this day, in communities among the Mohawk and the Seneca, they're practicing Handsome Lake's religion. His religion goes on, and it kept the people alive, and it gave them something to believe in. Tenskatawa was the name of a native man who lived down in around the Ohio region. And when the government was moving in big time to co- kind of capture everything up to the Mississippi, the people there were joined under a leader called Tecumseh. Tecumseh, in around the time of the early 1800s, was a man who had a vision to unite all Native nations into a single nation, into a single people, and stop white colonialism in its tracks. And he came that close to doing it. And the person who helped him do it was a man called the prophet, Tenskatawa. And that prophet created a a religion for all of the people, all of the traditions. It was an inter-pan-Indian, pan-Native gathering of peoples. And they almost pulled it off to stop Western expansion of the settlers. In the Northwest, I mentioned the sleepers. Uh, There were people in the sleeper religion who had amazing experiences among their people to protect their people from being driven off the land. You may have heard of Chief uh, Joseph, who tried to escape to Canada with his whole people trying to get across that border to stop the American government from forcing them into reservations. And he, he walked to the last breath uh, to, to try and escape and was captured. And his mm-hmm. people were held together by only one thing, and that was his faith, his spiritual faith in their traditions, which is what uh, Samola, who was their prophet, brought to them. Finally, Wavoka, the ghost dancer, fascinating character, the ghost dance. I tell a story that he was uh, in, in the time of the, of the ghost dance was the 1890s. Uh, long about that time in the 1890s was when Wounded Knee occurred and when people mm-hmm. next door to you were, were slaughtered because they were ghost dancers, because mm-hmm. they were dancing. Sitting Bull was killed because he was a ghost dancer. So knowing what Wavoka, his pro- the prophet Wavoka, what his ghost dance was all about is fundamental to understanding Native traditions. So these four people from four different nations, four different experiences, four powerfully strange and amazing people uh, are the four prophets that I talk about. And each one of them brings us to a different level of understanding Mm -hmm. uh, how we can survive as a people or how individually we can make a difference in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you brought up the ghost dancers in particular. I, I, I'm from South Dakota, and so I uh, have been to Wounded Knee. I've got many friends out yeah. in, in the Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge Reservation, and so um, uh, w- what a what a sacred place. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what a I mean, obviously the the tragedy of what happened there, and and to feel that land still hold that, uh, it's just a really remarkable, remarkable place. I think it's uh, interesting. We used the term not long ago in our conversation about the holy lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are holy lands Certainly. where, 100%. where the, the people died in that uh, massacre of the first wounded knee. Those are very sacred. The Black Hills are sacred. Yes. Things like that. They, they really, and it's still there, that vibration of the spirit, that, that 
crying out of a people. It's powerful in the Dakotas. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. One of the things that I often get uh, from the Christian circles I run around is uh, the, the sort of belief that some of these things about Jesus or some of the things that happened in the Bible have to be like historically, literally true in order for them to transform our lives. And what I love about you sharing some of these stories is, you know, whether or not some of these people, certainly they all existed historically, but, you know, whether or not they, you know, had these like real miraculous visions or not, it, 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 it's hard to know, right? We, we, we don't know that for sure. But what I love about the way that the, the these indigenous communities, each one of them have received those stories is it doesn't necessarily have to be like historically factual or not for them to be transformed by these stories. And I think we just even that alone have something to learn from these indigenous communities of the way that they receive these stories and the um, non-necessity of them to have to be like historically factual or not. I, I, I don't know if you have thoughts around that or if you have thought about that, but I find that very fascinating and something that a lot of Christians really could learn. Oh, gosh, I think that's really an insightful comment you just made. That's. I've never quite picked up on that in the same way, but I see exactly where it leads. I mean, that's right. These stories, it's the way that we receive them. In Native America, they're not projected like they are in the West. They, meaning spiritual ideas, spiritual vision, spiritual truth. Sometimes in the West, those are projected as being absolutes. This is it. Believe this. This is the one and only way to think about that subject, and that's it. In Native America, it was very different. That was anyone can give their spiritual vision. You can stand up and proclaim it. You can paint it on the outside of your teepee. You can change your name so everybody will know that you have a new spiritual vision. Whether or not it's adhered to is up to the people who hear your story. If they feel that they they get something in that story that makes sense to them, they'll respond to you. If not, they won't. So it's it's the will of the people acted out with the spirit of, of the holy moving through them. You may be a part of that, or you may not. It, your story, it's okay to give your story. But to receive it, you have to receive it as a spiritual. This person's trying to tell you a spiritual truth. Now, did he actually spend 40 days and 40 nights in a wilderness? Or did he actually do this? Or did she do that? Uh, we uh, That's not really as much of an issue as right. it is to know that 
is the story the person's telling truthful and inspirational? Yeah, it it makes me wonder, given the fact that in like Western colonial Christianity, obviously there is this like necessity that these stories have to be historically fact and then therefore they're universalized or absolutized. And I wonder like what's the colonizing uh, reason for that? Like what is it about uh, needing these stories to be absolute? What is it that why why these stories are needed to be historical facts? Uh, There's got to be some sort of um, colonial colonizing reason for that to be the case. I, I don't know if you have thoughts around that, but th- it seems to be a way, like th- this sort of absolutization, this like very needed, uh, th- this necessity for historical fact just seems like something that would come out of uh, colonization or at least the way a, a colonized mind, essentially. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I think you, you're onto something there too. There's a difference between I- the cult of individuality, um, individualism, in the West, that this is going to be the great man or the great woman or the the leader who will step forward and take over and uh, we must all believe together. It's conformity. The West wants conformity. They want you to march in single file, march into the factories, march into the armies, march into the workplaces. Uh, So they don't like differences. Uh, They don't like totalitarianism doesn't like questions. It only likes answers, and they give the answers. So I think there's that individualism where then you prize the powerful individual, the unit, the one person who rose up above everybody, the Napoleon of you know mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. In Native America, it's individuality, that which means everybody is a different individual. You know, you you live according to the beat of your own drum. Uh, you dress like you want, you talk like you want, you do what you want. And so it's a, it's a pride in being an individual, but nobody's marching in lockstep. Right. I think there's somewhere in there are the two distinctions between the two cultures when they meet, met one another. And some, mm-hmm. with their religious way of worldview, wanted absolute conformity. There was only one way to, to survive in that community. Among right. our people, you could pretty much think whatever you wanted. If you didn't do something outrageously, ridiculously bad, where they had to drive you away, you could pretty much do what you wanted. Right. And it seems like there's this um, individuality with relationship. You know, we, we were talking earlier about the relationship to Mother Earth and obviously mm-hmm. relationship to one another. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be like such a key part of the way that uh, indigenous communities, many of them, understood themselves as you have these individuals where, you know, you can change your name. And, you know, th- there was a- an emphasis on that, that you as a person could express your own individuality. At the same time, you're in relationship with everyone else, including uh, the ecosystems in which you live. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, it was an. It's like a vast network of kinship of relationships. Yeah. Everything yeah. is based on a web of relationships, and because yeah. that's so solid, you then can allow people a little latitude in how they want to express themselves. Mm-hmm. You don't mind eccentrics. Uh, that's all right. Uh, the person's not causing any harm, and if they're saying things that are different, let them say it. They had their own vision. Time will tell if that vision will sustain itself. So I believe there's a much freer, more relaxed, open uh, society available to us if we want to work in that direction as a people 
uh, today, we can we can replicate a great deal of what was common on this on this continent for centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's listening to this podcast right now and they love the ideas that we that, that you're talking about, you know, maybe they even read the book and they they're like, I love I love these stories, I love these ideas, I, I love the the um, the wisdom that you're sharing. What are are, is, are there like kind of practical steps that maybe you would suggest to a listener uh, that you know helps them get into living out uh, surviving this apocalypse? What what are some of the the practical steps that you would or, or maybe practical advice even or the practical wisdom? Um, but what are some things that people can like tangibly do uh, in order to live out this survival of the apocalypse uh, based on some of these indigenous uh, wisdom that that you offer? Again, I'm sure there's got to be a lot of good uh, uh, things that I could suggest, but uh, I'll, I'll start with one that's very fundamental, and that is uh, start taking your spiritual life seriously. And that means with humor as well as being kind of dedicated to it. But really do. If, you're, if you haven't thought a lot about spirituality recently, if you stopped going to church a long time ago or you don't like church and you're not sure you think, Christianity or Judaism or any of these religions, Islam, is right for you. Take your own spirituality seriously and do it enough that you really begin to question and ask yourself some of those very first questions we started this interview with. And that is, why am I here? And what do Mm -hmm. you want me to do? And who am I talking to? Those are very fundamental issues. And you, you start by asking those. And and let them lead you through through your own your own understanding of life. Let them lead you to begin to think about two things: one, what can I do, and two, who can I do it with. Mm. Those are two first questions to step over the threshold. Mm. Begin to understand what can you do. And many of us have got wonderful gifts we could bring to bear, great things we could do to help the cause to bring the new enlightenment to people and to help build a new society that's fair and just. There's so much that people's talent and imagination could contribute to that. And the the second question is, but you can't do it alone. That's the Mm -hmm. other thing about Native people. You can go up on a high hill by yourself and have a private vision, but you've got to come back down the hill and you've got to get involved with people. Mm -hmm. That's the whole meaning of the story of the Mount of the Transfiguration. Jesus Mm -hmm. goes up to a high hill, has his Native American vision quest, but he's got to come down right away and go back Mm -hmm. to work. Mm -hmm. And knowing who is your your peer group, we used to say it was the local parish or the local synagogue, and that may be for you, and that's okay. Maybe your local tribe, your local Native nation with its traditions and its teachings and its ceremonies, that's okay. That's fine. Not asking anybody to give up anything. You can hold on to who you think you are, what's important to you, but find another active community. Get Mm -hmm. busy with it. I've joined more active communities during the pandemic than I I ever imagined I would. Mm -hmm. And it's because I felt tied down into a place and I had to keep doing something. I had to keep reaching out. And there's lots of good causes and lots of good communities working hard. And they could use your help, my help. So get involved in one of them. And Mm -hmm. let nature take its course. If it's meant to be, it will draw you deeper into it. You'll become an ever more effective agent of change in that area, and you'll make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. 
One of the things that I love so much is that you stress this necessity of spirituality and uh, and especially the necessity of spirituality when it comes to changing the world. And I, I'm in the political left world pretty often, and a lot of people in the political left world are not so keen on religion and spirituality, and, and, and maybe for some good reasons, obviously knowing some of the things that religion has done in the world. At the same time, I think of these issues that we see, like uh, the, the issues of white supremacy, issues of homophobia, issues of capitalism, all these different things going on, issues of war, greed, all these different things going on in our world. They're spiritual issues as well. Those are spiritual issues to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so because of that, we, we can't just simply think that we can, you know, get the right political system or you vote the right people in or whatever. These are also spiritual issues and we need to address them as spiritual issues too. And so that's part of the reason why I love this work so much. And what, what you're stressing is the fact that these are spiritual things and we need to sort of uh, not avoid spirituality when it comes to addressing these things. We actually need to dive deeper into spirituality. Oh, yes, by all means, because I understand where people are coming from when they're suspicious of religion. I I, I get that, and um, that they equate it with things, for example, in our community and in Canada, uh, the boarding schools that were run mm-hmm. by, by churches and governments. Uh, terrible stories, horrible images, and it makes people reject the religion. You know, well, then I'm not having anything to do with them. You throw the baby out with the bathwater because what was really true in indigenous communities, Aboriginal people of Australia, Maori people of New Zealand, the, the communities in Africa, what was true for indigenous communities is that they were motivated and held together by spirituality, that it was spirituality that allowed them to become um, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, egalitarian communities. Uh, not empires, but but local communities that worked. And that's what we're looking for, is to recreate a world in which there are local communities that are self-sustainable, that work in egalitarian ways, and that provide for all of its, all of its citizens, including provide for a freedom of spirituality that people can worship the divine in their own way, but mm-hmm. cooperate and share with one another. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a, a key understanding. Don't don't throw away spirituality. You can question religious life all you want, but don't forget you were born a spiritual being. You are with inside your own self a, a spiritual being wrapped in a finite shell in a finite world. But in yourself, Native people would say you are a part of a holy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you were born to be spiritual and and start working on your vision quest start looking having seeking visions either corporately with other people and working with them or privately go and sit Mm -hmm. down quietly and meditate and let yourself get in touch with something greater than yourself Mm -hmm. with that even just that advice right there that that um recommendation uh, then this kind of goes back to that question i wanted to bookmark let's say a a white person in particular does something like that. They're like, you know what? I'm committed to this vision quest and understanding. How can uh, like a person who, let's say, for example, is not indigenous, 
adopt or uh, take in the, these recommendations, these suggestions, this advice, this wisdom that you're sharing, how can they take that in without appropriating it, without sort of in, in a way uh, like colonizing th this indigenous offering? Is there, how, how do you navigate that? Like, or how would you recommend somebody to navigate that difference of, of uh, you know, taking in these suggestions, taking in this recommendation, taking in this wisdom, but not in a way that's either appropriating it or even worse, colonizing it? Yeah, that's a very sensitive issue and very, very important. First of all, we have to assert that we need to have some permeable boundaries between us as peoples. That is, okay, some people were born into being uh, in one culture and the other people were born into a different culture. How those two must learn to cooperate and communicate uh, means that we're part of a bigger whole, the human family. And so learning to relate to each other, we don't have to live in segregation. We don't have to be ghettoized. We can live shoulder to shoulder by next to one another and uh, respect each other. Now, in doing that, what you don't do is claim to kind of know more about the tradition than the people whose tradition it is, mm. or to begin to mimic, cherry pick some of their ceremonies or some of their ways of doing things and and just uh doing it in in out of context mm. doing it just because it somehow suits you or you want to you want to do it so we have a lot of phony uh spiritual leaders you have to be very careful they're, they're sort of shamans for hire they show up and they they pay you pay them a little money and they'll do do some mumbo jumbo that's not what we're looking at first doing any kind of connection with native communities you have to be very patient you have to learn to be willing to listen and to learn from them it may take a while and uh, to be truthfully yourself not trying to put on airs or not trying to take something away from them mm -hmm. it's not easy the cross-cultural uh, work is some of the most difficult work and yet the most rewarding Mm -hmm. Because once the trust has been established, and there's the key word, once the trust is established and maintained, the ability to enter into other cultures, whether they're Native American or Moroccan or African or Aboriginal, whatever, is possible, you know, to enter in. We're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And rediscovering each other as humans is okay. Right. But doing it with great respect and with a lot of patience, that's yeah. the key. Yeah, to me, it just goes back to relationship. If you build a long-lasting, trusting relationship, then that that seems to be the way for one to mitigate or avoid that uh, potential appropriation or colonization. Um, because at the end of the day, if you're in deep relationship with a community, you're going to learn from them and you want to learn from them. And uh, they want to offer something to you. And, and, I, and I think that, but that all comes back to you actually being in relationship. If you're trying to do this without being in relationship, uh, good luck, uh, especially good luck uh, tr doing it without appropriating or colonizing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, last couple questions here, uh, Stephen. Uh, uh, how do you hope that this book inspires and liberates its readers? Oh, gosh, I sure do. I hope it inspires and liberates. I, I, I wrote this book because there's so many people that are sad and worried today. I mean, and I'm talking about people now in the United States, in Canada, mm -hmm. let's say. Certainly in the United States. In Europe, people are anxious 
They're worried about where the world is going. They feel out of control. They feel on the edge of an apocalypse. They can't quite define it. I wrote this book because I wanted to help people like that. I wanted to help us all take this as an opportunity to learn from the Native American part of history about some of the things we can do together to avert the coming apocalypse, to restore the planet, and to create a more just and, and peaceful society. And so my little book is an attempt to offer people some guidance through the Native American perspective that would lead in those directions. Mm-hmm. So to read my book, I think you need to have an open mind and be inquisitive. It, it It's in the history of our people. It'll tell you the stories of some of our people. But uh, it ultimately is aimed at, at trying to give people tools in this society and in this time that they can use, practical things they can do to restore the planet and restore egalitarianism between all of us. Mm, love that. Uh, last question, Stephen. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? And where should they get the book? I Go to your local bookstore. I always say that. People you know, order books online. That's fine. But the, the local bookstore, if you've, especially if you've got a mom and pop bookstore, uh, keep them in business and, and go to your local bookstore. Uh, I've got several books out. This is the latest one. You'll find two or three others that might be of interest to you. Um, but I hope you'll not only take it, but you'll give it away. Uh, give it mm. to one of your family members or friends. Give it for Christmas, whatever you want to do. But I want this book because everybody who's read it feels, oh, okay, that's better. It feels better. It's not like things have gone away overnight. But yeah, okay, so there is something we could be doing, something I could be doing. And this book will help you find it. And you'll mm-hmm. feel better and you'll feel stronger. So I hope people will take it take it to heart and share mm-hmm. it with others. Well, and there's nothing better when you feel empowered to share that with others, right? Yeah, that's right. So I hope they will. I don't know. I'm getting older, and so I don't know how many more of these <laughs> I'll have in me. But I want to keep trying to share what's made such a difference in my life that I don't have to feel conflicted about my spiritual self and my everyday self. I, I can feel like a whole person and I have a lot of hope, a lot of hope in the future. Love that. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for chatting a little bit more about the book. I, I think it's incredible. I mean, certainly it's going to be a book that I also share with others. And so uh, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about it. Uh, I, I just really appreciative of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can get connected with Stephen and his work in the links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.